All right. Good morning, church family. He is risen. Amen. We have something, we have a reason to celebrate this morning. Amen. You know, we gather, like Kayla said, we gather every Sunday morning to worship, to serve, to give, to uh, just pour out our love upon Christ for what he's done for us. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes. They're in your program this morning. And uh, we're going to talk about the story. One perfect life. Maybe some of you are very familiar with the story of Jesus, the story of uh, the resurrection. But maybe some of you this morning are not very familiar with really the, the life of Christ. And so here's what I want to do. I want to fill you in a little bit this morning. I want to help you understand who Jesus is a little bit more. I want to connect the dots a little bit. I want to fill in the gaps. And, and maybe, just maybe, I may cause you to rethink a little bit about who Jesus is. You know, many people love Jesus' teachings. Actually, quite a few people are drawn to his teachings. A lot of people like the, the social gospel. They're, they're drawn to this Jesus that, that has this massive love for the poor. Jesus talked about helping the poor and loving one another and, and serving others and forgiving one another. And, and people love that. They're drawn to that, right? But maybe there's a question that's looming in your mind, and the question is, who is Jesus? Maybe for some time, you've been wondering about that question, and, and you maybe don't really have the answer to that. And so many people think, well, you know, Jesus, he was a, he was a good teacher. They chalk it up to that. He was, he was a good teacher. Some people say, nah, he was a wandering holy man. Some people say he was a magician who sought to lead Israel astray. Some people believe that he was a first century Palestinian nutcase. He was a self-proclaimed prophet who died in disillusionment. Some people say he was, he was a moral reformer. He came to reform people morally. He was a political savior. He was a social revolutionary. Some people say, no, Jesus is just pure legend. When it comes to the the resurrection story in his life is just one big fabrication of the early church. Some people say, well, he may have been a good teacher, but maybe he was just a good man. Or was he more than that? Was he more than just a good man? Was he more than just a good teacher? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I believe that his life is worth an investigation. Here's a man who single-handedly changed history. His birth split our calendar between B.C. and A.D. He's considered to be the most influential person in history. The Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, 66 books. God wrote many books. In my opinion, the Bible is the greatest book to have ever been written. It, is, it has one central figure it has one dominant storyline. The narrative is about redemption, God's creation, the fall of humanity, God pursuing and, and God chasing us and then sending his son for us and dying for our sins and rising again from the grave. The Bible is about Jesus. Sometimes people come to the Bible and they're like, I just don't even understand what it's talking about. Listen, here's what it's about, Jesus. There you go. It's about him. 
It's about God's love for humanity. It's about God's redemption and God giving second chances to people who really don't deserve it. It's, the Bible is the single most published book in the history of the world. Think about that. It's been translated into over a thousand different languages. It has survived bans, burnings, ridicule, criticism. Kings and emperors have tried to eradicate it, and they couldn't do it. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, you know what? I am a self-avowed atheist. Or you might say, no, I'm one step you know, further, right, towards maybe Christianity. I'm, I'm an agnostic. I, I think there's maybe a God and a mind, a higher being, something, because there's no way that this just happened, right, by coincidence, by some random fluke chance. Or you might say, you know what, I, I'm a skeptic. And it's okay to be a skeptic, actually. It's okay to be a skeptic. And I would say if you're a skeptic, you're actually in good company this morning. Because all throughout the Bible, there were so many skeptics. Do you know that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe in him? I mean, he performed all these miracles. He preached all these sermons. I mean, they did not believe in him. James, the little brother of Jesus, was a skeptic. He did not believe that his big brother was indeed the Messiah, right? He just wasn't going for it. He wasn't buying it until... He met his bigger brother who came back from the dead three days later. Now, if, if, if you encounter Christ, you, you know, we know that John and Peter were two disciples that were at a distance. A lot of the women there, a lot of the women were there. The men, nowhere to be found. Go women, right? Go women. Let's go. The women believed, the disciples doubted. They were locked in a house. Come on, man. The women, they were all in from the very, very beginning. Peter and John were there, and if, if you saw, if you saw your leader, if you saw Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, crucified, and then you saw him with your eyeballs, you heard him with your ears, three days later, after they put him in a, in a rich man's tomb, you would believe as well. Maybe that's the boat you're in. You're in the skeptic boat. You're an honest skeptic. You're honest. You're, you know, you're like, hey, I'm an unbeliever. I, I, I have suspicion about Jesus. I have suspicion about those church people. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you the inside scoop on church people. Despite what the culture tells you, as believers, followers of Christ, we believe wholeheartedly that we are imperfect. We believe that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. And this is why we gather, because we're a people that have been forgiven, forgiven much. And so there's something to, to cultivate with God. There's something where we worship him and adore him and serve him because of what he's done for us. If you know a Christian and they've let you down, you need to move, move past them. You need to look to Jesus who will never let you down. Here's what I want to do. A lot of people come on Easter Sunday and they hear the same message, resurrection, resurrection, but they don't really get a kind of a, a high-level sweeping overview of who he is. And I, I don't think you can really celebrate or really appreciate or really understand the resurrection unless you're willing to dig deep into his life, peel back the layers of the onion of his ministry, and, and, and um, open your heart to what the Word of God says about who Jesus is. So we're going to start with point, 
point number one, pull out your notes. Um, here it is, one-of-a-kind birth. He had a one-of-a-kind birth. In the Old Testament, there were bold and specific predictions about who he would be and, and what he would do. The predictions ranged. They were written anywhere from 1400 to 400 B.C., 1,000-year span. And these predictions, we call them prophecies. They were given to us in the Old Testament by prophets hundreds of years leading up to the birth of Jesus. Let me share one with you. It's penned in the book of Isaiah. I, I don't want you to miss this. Isaiah gave this prediction 700 years before Jesus was born. Don't gloss over that too quickly. Not seven days before he was born. Church, say it with me. 700. 700. Now, like, that's like a long time, right? Anyone agree with me? Okay, good. All right. A little bit more lively than the first service. Okay, here we go. So Isaiah, first service was kind of dead. I'm like, everyone wake up. It's Resurrection Sunday. Come on. Jesus woke up. You wake up. Let's go. Isaiah 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is the sign? What's the sign of his coming? The sign of the Messiah. The sign of redemption. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God penetrated earth. God came to humanity. Fast forward, right before his birth, an, an angel appears to Joseph. And the angel is, is kind of explaining to Joseph what's kind of going on because Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And so, you know, Mary comes to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And Joseph's like, okay, who's, uh, who, with who, right? Who kind of like, wouldn't you be thinking the same thing? I'd be like, you have some explaining to do, Right. She's like, no, it's, it's of God. It's of the Holy Spirit. I have been chosen by God to bear the Messiah. Look at Matthew one twenty. But as he considered these things, speaking of Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is clearly born of a virgin, there are some things that there are churches, there are Christians that are they're folding, they're compromising. They're, oh, no, he wasn't born of a virgin. There's no way it's supernatural. Well, God does the supernatural. God can do things outside the box. This is God. So he's born of a virgin, which means two things. Number one, it means that Jesus is sinless. Number two, it means that he's God. Now let's go back to him being sinless. He's sinless because... The Jews believed that the original sin, like sinful nature, passed through the seed of the man. Well, Joseph didn't have sex with Mary. So Jesus was adopted. If you have kids that have been adopted, that's a picture of the gospel. Jesus was adopted. Isn't that beautiful? He was adopted, right, by, by Joseph. That was his stepdad. And so the, the, the original sin didn't pass through. He's sinless, but, but it points to a greater reality, a greater, a greater truth that he indeed is God. When, when, when Jesus came to earth, heaven came to earth. God put skin on. I want you to think about that for a moment. The God who spoke and nothing became something, nothing became everything. This God said, I'm putting skin on. I'm coming to my world. The incarnation Jesus taking upon flesh. Jesus, the God-man. When Jesus came to earth, heaven came to earth. He came with one purpose. And it wasn't to feed the poor. 
It wasn't to give like this, this social gospel. A lot of people think, well, the, the cross, you know, it's just, this, it's just this beautiful picture of, it's an example for us to love one another. No. But God demonstrates his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It goes beyond just a good example. Jesus had to die for our sins so we could be made right with God. When I think about his birth, I think about his death. You cannot disconnect the cradle from the cross, the baby from being the king. See, in the Gospels, it says that the angels told the shepherds, which, by the way, we have this very clean version of shepherds, like they're clean, you know, maybe they're even spiritual, you know. No, they were dirty, rotten thieves. The gospel came to broken people first. Didn't come to perfect people. It came to imperfect people. So they told the shepherds, hey, go and, and see this baby that's wrapped in swaddling cloths. And so, and so they did. Now, in our mind, a manger that Jesus was placed in, we're thinking, oh, it's made out of wood. Right, or maybe some of you are thinking like pottery barn bassinet, you know, or like IKEA. Let me just say this: if you want to buy something from IKEA, go ahead. It's going to take you days to build it. Okay, I'm just saying, right? I'm just trying to save you some time. Don't buy anything from IKEA. No, okay, whatever. All right. So you think, oh, it's it's this like beautiful wooden manger? No, it was stone, cut out of rock, cut out of stone. Look at Luke two twelve, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in a manger. So when we think of manger, think trough cut out of rock, right? Stone. Now fast forward to the end of his life. They take Jesus off the cross, Luke 23, 53. Then he took it down. They took the body down, Christ's body, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. Jesus was born. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, cloths, right? He placed on a stone platform. 33 years later, Jesus was crucified. He was taken down off the cross. He was again wrapped in a cloth and placed in an empty tomb, a rich man's tomb, a borrowed tomb, and placed on a stone platform. Here's what I'm saying. Cradle cross connected. Here's why Jesus came. He was born to die. Jesus came to give his life for you. And that should move you. That should move you this morning to think that how could the God of this universe love me? I'm so unworthy. I don't deserve it, but, but he does. He simply does. Now here's the second point. He, Jesus sought out sinners. He sought out sinners. Let me give you kind of a high level, quick overview of a little bit about his life. So born of a virgin, right? Uh, son of a carpenter. So Jesus was a blue collar, got his hands dirty. He understood what it meant to get like, you know, calluses on his hands. Hard worker, 30 years. Probably worked with his dad in a nearby village. At the age of 30, started his public ministry at a, wani, at a, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. He turned water into wine. Beautiful, right? For three years, he spent time after hand-selecting his disciples. Now, here's the amazing thing about him building a team. He called these disciples, these, these followers. Here's the makeup of the group. He picked fishermen, family, tax collector, which was a thug. A tax collector was someone who just ripped his people off. People knew it, just ripping people off, taking their money, skimming off the top. He picked a first-century assassin, 
He picked a skeptic and he picked a traitor because Judas was a traitor. Now, does that sound like a winning team or what? That sounds like a winning team to me, right? I mean, for me, if I was going to pick a, build a team, I'd be looking at resumes, credentials, accolades. Okay, well, past performance is indication of future performance. All right, what has this person done? No, not, not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. There's a story of an airplane that was flying that ran out of gas, and four people were on board, and there was only three parachutes, and they started discussing amongst themselves, you know, who should get the parachute, and when the plane goes down, and one guy said, well, let me tell you something. I'm a doctor working on a cure for cancer. I'm so close. The world needs me, and he grabbed a bundle, and he jumped out. The next guy said, I'm the smartest guy in the world. The world can't live without my intellect, so he grabbed a bundle and jumped out. There were two left, a priest and a Boy Scout. The priest said, you know, you're young, little fella. You're young, you know. You, you got your whole life ahead of you. You take the parachute, and I'll go down with the plane. And the Boy Scout handed the parachute back to the priest and said, no worries. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> That's good, huh? I've been working on that all week. Working on the timing all week, so you would laugh. Here's the deal. Jesus didn't pick his disciples. I think, he, I, think I heard a laugh of a little kid back there. <laughs> After service, I want to give you bumps, little guy. All right. Jesus didn't pick people based on who they were at the moment. He picked people because he saw potential. See, Christ sees you. Yeah, he knows you're a sinner. But he knows that if you surrender and you encounter your Christ, the living Christ, and you give your heart and life to him, he could do something beautiful with it. Jesus performed miracles for three years. He, he caused the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the mute to speak. He took a little boy's sack lunch, and he, and he fed thousands of people. We think a few hundred, a few thousand. No, no, like 15, 20, 25,000 people with a sack lunch. That's a miracle working God. He raised people back from the dead. This is what he did. He interrupted a funeral procession in the little village called Nain and brought back a widow's son, brought back Lazarus. He's a miracle working God. He, he has power over the grave, but the greatest miracle, I'm here to tell you, the greatest miracle is not being, someone being able to speak or see or, or touch or whatever or feel leprosy or come back from the dead. The greatest miracle is that Jesus pursued sinners like you and me. That's the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is that God reaches into our messy lives and he draws us by his grace and by his mercy. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when you look at verse 13, there are four words. I want you to, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle these words. I want you to circle well. I want you to circle righteous. I want you to circle sick. And I want you to circle sinners. Well, Sick, righteous, sinners. Well goes with righteous, sick goes with sinners. Now you might say, well, I'm a little bit confused. I, aren't we all 
Sinners in need of forgiveness and grace, absolutely, 100%. What Jesus is saying, there's a class of people that believe, they feel like they are well. They are righteous. They don't need Jesus. They don't need help to get through this life, right? They don't need a savior. See, this is how I see it. Those who don't see Christ as a great savior, they, they don't see themselves as a, as a sinner. I think there's, um, there can be some entitlement there, right? They, they kind of feel like entitled, like, I, I just, I, you know, I'm good. I, I don't need help. And entitlement kills gratitude. Do you see yourself as well? Or do you see yourself as sick? Someone, if you're well, you're righteous. You're like, hey, you, you know what? Based on the scales, good, bad. Hey, man, you think the good scales are outweighing the bad scales. You're doing pretty good. You, but if you see yourself as sick, you see yourself the way God sees you, the way the Bible sees you, that you're desperately wicked, that your heart is far away from God, that you need the mercy and the grace of God to forgive you. Here's point number three. So one-of-a-kind birth, he sought out sinners. Number three, he showed us the way back to God. This is what he did. He showed us the way back to God. Now, ask anyone about Jesus, and you're going to get mixed reviews, a lot of mixed reviews. But almost no one debates his existence. Even detractors even acknowledge that he was a real person. I mean, no one discredits the idea that he was a real historical person. A lot of people, they quote him, you know, don't judge, at least you be judged, you know, love one another, forgive one another. But there's one truth claim that a lot of people who like to quote Jesus, but they don't really follow Jesus, there's one truth, one saying that Jesus said that they're not going to say. And that is this. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, a lot of people are familiar with his teaching, but they're not familiar with his claims. Jesus made some big claims. You know, when he healed people physically, he would then say, go and sin no more. Or, or he would forgive their sin. And the religious establishment, they, would, they were just, it drove them batty. It drove them crazy because they were like, how can you forgive sins? Only God can do that. That's exactly what he's doing. That's exactly the point. Jesus said, I have full authority. I have all authority to forgive sins. He, he makes an exclusive claim. It's not very popular. A lot of people, it rubs them the wrong way. Like, how could Jesus say this? The reason people say that is because they, they, they come to Christianity or they come to life with this idea that it's religious pluralism. All roads are basically the same. We don't want to leave anybody out. You know, all worldviews are, you know, basically teach the same. And so, you know what? For you to say that you are the only way, that, that creates a problem. But Jesus said, listen, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In the midst of an, in, in a, of an inclusive culture, Jesus made exclusive claims about who he is. So if you're going to say, oh, man, I like Jesus' teachings, well, you have to accept all of his teachings. You can't just accept a few and then be like, well, 
his statement about him being the only way to heaven, I just don't know if I agree there. You, you got to accept all of it or none of it. Here's, here's the next point. Bore our sins. Bore our sins. The Gospel of Mark says that Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning. The Gospel of Matthew says that Jesus spoke his final words at 3 p.m. So that means for six hours, Jesus hung on the cross. Now, what is crucifixion? It is a slow, agonizing, horrifying death by asphyxiation. You're losing oxygen. It was done in a public manner. When you were crucified, you were a public spectacle. We know when Christ was crucified, they mocked him, they jeered at him, they spit upon him, right? If, if you're indeed the king, if you're indeed the Messiah, bring yourself down from the cross. He was made to be a public, pub, public spectacle of, of shame. Cru crucifixion targeted the most ner sensitive nerve centers on the human body. They would take someone's hands and feet and they would nail seven inch spikes, equivalent to railroad spikes, and they would drive the spikes through the nerve centers of your hands and through your feet. History records that some people lived, they lived up to nine days being crucified. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. That's what it means. The excruciating pain of crucifixion. You know, Good Friday was the darkest day in history. It was the worst day in history. The king of the universe was slain. The disciples had scattered. They had abandoned him. Dreams and hopes shattered and lost. It was dark over the face of the earth for, for some time. Jesus was experiencing the agony of the cross. You have to understand He's human. He's fully man. Yes, he's fully God. But that doesn't negate the fact that he's fully human. He's experiencing this agony, this pain, dehydration, exhaustion, traumatic fever, suffocation, excruciating pain throughout his whole body. And you know what he tells us? On the cross, look at John 19 to 30. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At that moment, as he hung on the cross, for six hours, he said, it is finished. In the Greek, the phrase, it is finished, is tetelestai. It was used in the Greek culture when a, a painter would paint a masterpiece. And he would, he would put the final brushstroke on it. And he would stand back and he would say, tetelestai, it is finished. It was used when a lender would give out a loan. And when the borrower repaid the debt, the lender would take a stamp and stamp the document. And the, the document was to Telestai. It is finished. It is complete. Payment made. Church family, do you understand what I'm saying here? When Jesus hung on the cross for all your sin, past, present, future, he said it is finished to Telestai. Complete. Payment made. So when the devil comes and he wrecks your life and he brings shame and he brings guilt and he makes you feel you're not worthy, you are worthy. You are loved by God because he made the final payment for our sins. And then Jesus cried with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last. He yielded his spirit. But I love how Jesus said that. 
Father, into your hands I commit. No one took Jesus' life from him. He willingly laid his life down for us. That's true love. First John tells us the love that God had for us. He died for his friends. He, he laid his life down for us. He said, I commit my spirit to you, Father. In Matthew 27, verse 54, there was, a, there was an onlooker there, many onlookers, but there was one, a centurion. When the centurion and, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Here you have a centurion. I mean, he is a professional executioner. This is not his first rodeo. He is, he is probably experienced, eyewitnessed thousands, maybe tens of thousands of crucifixions. And, and here is this centurion, this, this, the backbone of the Roman army. And the gospel of Luke tells us that the centurion looked at Jesus and said, this man was innocent. The gospel writer Mark said that the centurion stood facing Christ and he saw that in this way, he breathed his last. And the centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion said, this was no mere mortal. This was no mere man. This indeed is the son of God. He's different. There's something different about this man. Here's point number five. Jesus died victorious over death. Victorious over death. He bore our sins on the cross, but he was victorious over death. Good Friday was a horrific day. The darkest day in history, but the beauty of Good Friday, the reason we call it good is because what it leads to. Friday being bad, Friday being um, like a funeral, but Sunday being resurrection, celebration. You know, when Jesus took his final breath, I think heaven started counting to three. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the dawn of Sunday morning, I could just, just envision the, the, the dawn, the sun rising over the city of Jerusalem. And it says that the stone was rolled away by the angels. Look at Matthew 28 too. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I just want you to picture this for a moment. Great earthquake, angel descends, Stone rolled away, Jesus walks out of the tomb alive. That's what it's telling us. Now you may say, well, you know, the disciples, you know, they stole his body. That's ludicrous. Think, just think about that for a moment. Just think about, just play that out in your mind. They stole the body. Actually, if you read, I was reading it just the other day. I can't remember what account it was. Maybe Gospel Mark. I don't know. But, um, or Matthew. That, that was the rumor that was spread. Hey, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to tell everyone that, you know, that um, the disciples stole the body. And so it started with the, with the Jewish leaders and they paid off the, the soldiers. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. The disciples, here's what they do. This band of ragtag disciples, uneducated men, I mean, just ordinary guys, not trained in any military tactics or strategy. They come to the tomb. They overpower these professional, elite Roman soldiers. Then they have the ability to roll the massive 
I don't know how many tons it was, the massive stone away from the opening of the tomb. And then they go in and they hijack Jesus' body. They take his body and then they, they hide his body somewhere or they bury him somewhere. Then they invent this resurrection story. And, and word spreads and, and they tell the story and now they're persecuted, they're targeted, and all of them except for one were martyred for their faith. Now, if I was one of the 11 and I was getting ready to be speared, beheaded, crucified, you know what I would do? I would say, time out. Give me a moment real quick. Let me tell you, okay, I'm gonna crack, right? Maybe the other 10 guys, they're locked in on the story, but I'm gonna tell you what really happened. We stole the body and I'm gonna go show you where we buried him. It doesn't make any sense. See, you would only die for something that really happened. If you really saw him, if you really talked to him. Oh, what about the women? You know, the, the, the women went to the wrong tomb. No, it's, no. The Jewish leaders knew where the tomb were, where was at. The Roman guards were guarding the, the, the tomb. There's only one outcome. There's only one outcome. The man who was dead beat death. And the beauty of the gospel, which means good news, and the good news is the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And why is it good news? Here's, what it, here's why it's good news. He died for your sins so you wouldn't die in your sins. You wouldn't die apart from Christ. He didn't just die and be death. He proved that he was alive. He, he spent 40 days with people. Look at Acts 1.3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Circle that word proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 24, the account about the resurrection, the angels tell Mary Magdalene and the other women at the tomb, he is risen. The three most glorious words, the word three, talks about completeness and wholeness. Dead people normally remain dead, right? Right? I mean, we've all been to funerals. I have never seen someone just rise from the casket. Bam. I mean, that would freak me out, right? I mean, I think there was a story. I think Candace, my wife, told me a story about someone that they thought was dead, and they, she was at the mortuary, and then they found her, but she was actually alive. Creepy, dude. She was actually alive. You can Google it. It's crazy. But I'm talking like really died. Like really died and he really came back to life. And it says that he presented himself. He showed everyone, hey, for 40 days, right? He walked out of the tomb. They saw him. They touched him. They heard him. And they ate with him. 1 Corinthians 15 says that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time. You might say, oh, man, they, they, that was some trip, some LSD crazy thing. No, listen, 500 people can't have the same hallucination. It's impossible, right? Paul said, hey, if you're skeptic about this, if you don't believe, go and talk to him. Many of them are still alive. Most of the gospels were written and, and the eyewitnesses to the resurrection were still alive, which is amazing, right? Like, there's eyewitnesses. There's, you can go investigate and look into the story. The word convincing, the word proof means convincing proof, not contradictable. It is irrefutable. It's infallible. Here's the beauty of this word. It is only mentioned once, 
And Luke, he reaches into the ancient world and he pulls out this word. And he says, he presented himself alive by many proofs, by many convincing proofs, by many non-contradictable proofs, by many irrefutable, infallible proofs. He picked that one word that people would understand and he said, listen, it's a done deal. He did it, he died, he was buried, he rose again. People have been talking to him. You can go see him, he's alive. You know, you think about the disciples, all of them suffered and died a moral's death. History tells us that James was beheaded. Thomas was speared to death in India. Simon, the brother of James, the younger, was crucified in Egypt. Bartholomew preached in India. He was beaten, crucified, beheaded. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified. I love this. The proconsul ordered Andrew not to preach anymore. You know what he said? His famous statement. I love this. Quote, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. That's good. Matthew, he converted Ethiopia and all Egypt to Christ. He was killed with a spear. Peter was crucified upside down at his own request, probably because he felt unworthy. History even tells us that his own wife was crucified in front of him. John, before his exile on the island of Patmos, they tried to boil him alive. He then governed the churches of Asia Minor after his exile. He died around the age of 100. Here's what I'm saying. No one dies for something that they believe is untrue. The reason these guys were willing to die and give their life was because they spent time with Jesus. And that's all that mattered. It's all it took. They spent time with him, and they're like, he is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He has showed us the way back to God. So here's the question. As we close in the next few minutes, don't start wrapping up yet. Here it is. This is the most important. How can the perfect life of Jesus change your imperfect life? Because I'm going to be honest with you this morning. God called me to be a pastor, to preach the Bible, but I'm so imperfect. I'm, 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 I am broken. I am a broken man. I'm a sinner. But I love Jesus. Maybe, many people, maybe someone brought you here this morning, maybe people around you, they would say, I, I, I'm a sinner. And, and, but for the grace of God, only by God's grace am, am I a different person. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live. This is the wonder of Christianity. He lived the life you could never live. Imperfect people don't go to heaven. Only perfect people go to heaven. Only Jesus can make you perfect in the eyes of God. Here's the reality. Only forgiven people go to heaven. Only forgiven people. Romans 5.1, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you might say, well, okay, what does this mean? Justified by faith. It's a legal term. Like, you are guilty in the courtroom of life. You, I mean, it's a, it's a fact, right? Evidence is stacked against you. you. You have sinned against God. But then Jesus comes in, and he sets you free. He pays the fine. He pays your debt. And so you're declared legal standing. You are made right with God again. And how is that? It's by faith. Maybe your whole life you've been told, you know, it's, it's what I've done, it's what I've not done, it's the skeletons in my closet, I gotta be more religious, right? Listen, 
Religion is about your performance, what you can do, what you can give to God. Relationship with Jesus is based on his performance. It's based on his grace and his love for you. And and God sending his son Jesus who penetrated the lostness of humanity in our world, who lived this perfect, righteous life and willingly gave his life on a cross for us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. One of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me unpack that for a moment. For by grace, unmerited favor, you didn't win it, you didn't earn it, it's something that's undeserved. You've been saved, your sins can be forgiven through faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in Jesus. Faith in his life, faith in his sacrifice, faith in his payment, his, his atonement for your sins. And this is not your own doing. A lot of people think, oh, it's my own doing. No, it's none of your doing. It's the gift of God. God gives you grace as a gift. He pursues you because of his mercy and his grace. It's not a result of your works so that no one may boast. If you're banking on heaven, if you're banking your works on getting you to heaven, it's not enough. I love what C.S. Lewis said. I would encourage you, if, if you are a skeptic, if you have questions about Christianity, um, read anything and everything by C.S. Lewis. It, it's... it's after the Bible, right, with the Bible. This is what he said. He died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. If you were the only one, Christ would have died for you. That is amazing grace and amazing love. So here's my challenge to you today. If you're a believer passionately live for him. His resurrection has great implication for your life. He's the king, right? We surrender. We follow him. If you're not a believer, I want to challenge you to trust in him today. Trust in him. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. And maybe today, after looking at the word of God, you're like, I think this is true. I think this is true. And maybe God is stirring within your heart a realization that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe this story. I believe the good news of the Bible. And if you do, trust his perfect life for you. Trust his payment for you. Trust in who he is and what he can do in your life. Not what you can do. Because what you can do is nothing. But you trust in him You bank eternity on him, on the cross, coming to Christ and saying, I am a sinner, you're a great savior, and I need your forgiveness. He'll step into your life and he'll forgive you. Let's pray. As you're in an attitude of prayer, I'm gonna close in in prayer in a moment, but I want you to be in an attitude of prayer, maybe silently praying, thinking about what I've shared with you this morning. The gospel of Jesus is good news. It is great news that you can know the God who created you. You can have a relationship with him. 
And the Bible tells us that if we place our faith in Jesus, he'll step into our lives and he'll forgive us and he'll step in to rule and reign. And so today I want to challenge you to give your life to Christ. You know, maybe you've had a lot of doubt in the past. Maybe you've just never really considered Jesus, thought about his life, the implications of his sinless, perfect life for you. But today, maybe today you say, you know what? I I believe. I'm ready to trust Jesus to be my Savior. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's just you being genuine, you being real and raw before God. And you acknowledging that you need a Savior. And you need forgiveness. And so in the quietness of your own heart, I just want you to, I just want you to speak this in your heart. Something to this effect. God, I'm a sinner. And I am separated from you because of my sin. But today... Based on your word, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he came and he died for me. And he rose again for me. So that someday, when I die, I can go to heaven. And I can be a part of your kingdom and your family forever. God, I pray you would step into my life. I surrender all. I trust you by faith with my limited understanding I trust you I believe in you forgive me change me today today I commit my life to you for the rest of my life as you're in an attitude of prayer I just want to throw out this question if you prayed that prayer or if you opened your heart to Christ with your own words Telling God you're a sinner and you want forgiveness and you want to follow Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, I want you to slip up your hand right now. Right now, slip up your hand. I see you. I see a little guy in the back. I see you. I see you in the back. It's never too late to give your life to Jesus. Let's pray.